Yeah, well, that's why I feel so at home here, Jerry, because when it comes to shoveling shit, you're full of it. shut up, the two of you. Jesus. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. It's season four. I'm member of the merely goodest generation, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here with projectionist union shop steward, Jeb Lunt. Hello, Jeb. We're not getting paid enough for this. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you said a mouthful. Uh, so today we are contemplating Come See the Paradise. Uh, which kicks off season four, season four here at Quaid and Fold, defined as the early 90s. Relatively short season, but a lot packed into a, a brief span. Um, Come See the Paradise is, uh, uh, I mean, let, let's just get into the plot summary, unless you have pod business to which we must attend. No, un- unfortunately, though the air date break on this is considerably later than the record date, uh, it means that I, uh, uh, I, I've not had a chance to really kind of, you know, get in the Denison's space. Uh, I, I have the feeling that my dark character turn for this season, because you do have to kind of, you know, you have to flip somebody by season four, mm-hmm. yep. is going to be standing hard for the Denisons. I think I'm probably going to listen to one of the, like the Fauci episode and be like, this guy has a social conscience and he's being railroaded. Okay. Um, thank you for warning me that that's about to occur <laughs> so that I can fully inhabit the, I don't even know if that's kayfabe. At this, I don't even know what we're talking about, honestly. Um, it is a little surprising. I'll find, some, I'll find some music and bring it up to kind of elevate the sense of dread. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of uh, things that we are looking for or looking forward to, a friend of the podcast, Margaret Howey, um, who works in keyword search, I think. I'm sure she can send me a stern tweet correcting me on what exactly her job is, unless it's too secret for her to tell us. Sent me some keyword stats for the year in Quaid search. Obviously, uh, the average searches for the phrase Dennis Quaid lead the list at, you know, 368,000 searches a month, followed by Jack Quaid, Randy Quaid, various names of various wives, uh, Dennis Quaid Young, Dennis Quaid Net Worth, How Old is Dennis Quaid, Jack Quaid Parents, Dennis Quaid Children, Dennis Quaid Height, and Randy and Dennis Quaid sort of bringing up the rear. But uh, my favorite parts of this list were at the very bottom. In the, yes. <laughs> in the two and three digit numbers for average monthly mm-hmm. search, including are Dennis and Randy Quaid twins, 90 searches a month, the Denisance, 70 searches a month, and did Dennis Oof. Quaid play the Joker, 10 searches a month. And... Once that was in my head, it was like, why didn't he? Like, it, you don't even need makeup. It's right there. It's right there. There's still time. Yeah, there is. I think he can do it. I also think he would be a good elderly Batman, but only if it's clear that Randy Quaid is the Joker and he's Batman's son. Okay. <laughs> I'm really like, uh, just on behalf of Dennis and also just I uh, maybe on behalf of like, just assuming that the the internet is horny as like a lampshade for my being horny. I'm surprised that Dennis Quaid nude or Dennis Quaid butt wasn't in like the top 
10. I am also surprised by that. And this may have been expurgated. Maybe this is just like, Fair enough. you know, light web keyword stats. Who can say? Right. So naturally filtering out some more embarrassing mom behavior of Dennis Quaid dick, <laughs> Dennis Quaid bulge, <laughs> Dennis Quaid package. Uh, Dennis Quaid third nipple. Who who knows what people are getting up to? <laughs> Dennis Quaid superfluous nipple. That's lower because it's more words, like more letters. It's <laughs> fine. Did Dennis Quaid play the Joker? Uh, we'll get back to you on that. Like, I'm kind of surprised there's not like, was Dennis Quaid responsible for 9-11? Not even like five. <laughs> Does Dennis like, Quaid want to abolish the penny? Dennis Quaid, 9-11 involvement. Dennis Quaid, 9-11 advance notice. Dennis Quaid, 9-11 inside job. Dennis Quaid, thermite. <laughs> like Dennis Quaid, Reagan, I think is not on there. Like this is, I mean, all right, I'll, I'll have follow-ups in our next episode. <laughs> If you're not very nice to me. Dennis Quaid controlled demolition. <laughs> Dennis Quaid massage ties. I mean, there's a lot to play. Like, I feel... Okay, I'll stop now. So, but what do we call these then? Quaid spiracies? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, we don't have to, to just go run with the one we think of first. We could uh, we can ruminate on okay. it. Okay. There's an off season. We just haven't taken it yet. There's some play on QAnon. Maybe that's what it actually stands for. Quaid. <laughs> Yeah, he's actually, Dennis Quaid, interestingly enough, is John F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> like, why do you think he was so convincing saluting? That's God-given talent. Yeah. <laughs> and have you seen them together? Well, not since 98. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get into this uh, movie, Come See the Paradise. Once again, Dennis in uniform. Um, not as enjoyable as it should be. So... Dennis Quaid, the least believable Philly via New York native in film history, plays Jack McGann, nay, Jack McGurn, a projectionist unionizer who finds love while lambing it in Los Angeles's little Tokyo. Then tragedy, when his Japanese-American wife Lily and her entire family are sent to the World War II internment camps following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This flawlessly shot film from the director of, among other things, Mississippi Burning and The Commitments, not to mention Angel Heart, is a turgid two-plus hours of filmic flashcards about this ugly period in American history as seen through the eyes not of the Kawamura family exclusively, but through their white would-be savior, Jack, all framed by clumsy as told to a child flashback narration. In order to find out to what degree of okay everything turns out in the end, you'll have to withstand a number of scenes in which Dennis Quaid strains at the hard stool of telling instead of showing, but I can tell you this in advance. The truly memorable performers in the cast, Shizuko Hoshi and Ronald Yamamoto, did not go on to the enduring fame of a certain GOP sympathizer. So, I don't know. This movie meant well, I think. But like a lot of movies that are 30 years old that mean well, it just kind of lies there in the end. I didn't hate it, but I was not captivated by it at any point, really, except to source Tamlin Tamita's makeup. What about you? Anything um, ensorcelled to say about Come See the Paradise? 
Um, I thought Farewell to Dennis Quaid was a very American update to Farewell to Manzanar. I think that summary was really great. I like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to no sell the reaction. I was just like, that's spot on. I don't have a lot to add. Um, it's cramming way too much. Um, there are a couple good stories that could be told in here, mm-hmm. maybe three different movies you could make. Yeah. But the fact that Dennis Quaid is sort of our entree to this story doesn't give the audience enough credit and crowds out the the dignity and the acting chops and the the naturalism of the story that the uh the kawamura family could have if we didn't have to have 45 minutes of you know quaid appended um i didn't know anything about it i hadn't seen it i don't even remember hearing about it and i went in deliberately blind just to see how i enjoyed it Mm. and as somebody who's you know been to japan and is not like otaku about it or anything but like respects japanese culture and enjoys it like it was very pretty and i and i for the first half an hour seemed optimistic and then as they sort of put more of it in there and then you got like the camps and explainer i i kind of was like oh man you you swung for way too much yeah i think this was made at a time when i guess we as an american culture were still only like starting to reckon with those camps in a real way, but this still feels very highlights magazine in the way that it's presented. Uh, a couple of contemporary reviews pointed to the um, affecting scene in which Quaid and Tamlin Tamita's daughter is uh, not allowed to go see Santa because she looks mm-hmm. Japanese and there's no Japanese allowed. There's like a sign in the store and that's a okay with everyone. And Quaid gnaws all the scenery, including the tinsel on the tree, and then storms out. And it's supposed to be really sad, but the fact is, like, he's the Anglo, and he he can't quite sell it at this wavelength emotionally, in my opinion. No, I thought he had really good chemistry with uh, Tamla Tamita, mm-hmm. and I thought their bits were... Like, I, I just enjoyed seeing them, and that's why I kind of wanted it to breathe more and, and have less insistence on on shoving all this in. Because, like, as the summary said, the minute he has to start just being like, Dr. Exposition yeah. for the plot, like, to get, you know, in case you didn't know, um, it, you know, he doesn't have the the gravitas to do it, and it's... it. It exposes the unnaturalism of the, the info dump part. Yeah. You know, a different leading man, I think, could have could have smudged out a lot of this because uh, it really does seem to be like a a labor of love for uh, for parker like this does seem like the sort of story that somebody who is deeply respectful of this plot would would make you know well i think also in the sort of production's defense i can imagine a store or like a pitch meeting in which parker tried to sell it without a, a you know sure. anyone attached in this role and was told that won't open. Yeah. It's gross, but I can absolutely see it happening, which is a fucking shame because Ronald Yamamoto was such a star. He's the singing brother. Mm-hmm. And um, he has this uh, wonderfully dry energy. And there are a few scenes that um, there's one in the um, camp where the family is fighting and the mom. And they're like, don't say, you know, the F word in front of mom. And she's like, I know the word. And it's like this back and forth where, oh, she's Japanese. She doesn't understand the word. And she repeatedly is like, I understand the word, like unconcerned eating dinner. I thought there was going to be a callback where she dropped an F bomb at the end of that. And I'm I'm glad they avoided my hacky instinct there. But the, like the family had a really good 
chemistry and occasionally there's this like dark humor to it. And Tamlin Tamita as Lily is excellent when she has to do these like, well, it wasn't allowed because we were Japanese to the <laughs> wretched child actor playing their child. Yeah. Um, she's good. Like the the Japanese actors are way better at doing this than Dennis Quaid, who could be like, well, he felt really awkward. I don't think so. I think this just isn't his forte. Uh, Tamita is just doing double duty in this because she's stuck in two movies. She's in a great romantic movie with him where they're just together and you can enjoy that. And then she's in this historic epic with her family. And it just makes you like this and, and like the terror season two just make me want to be like, just film farewell to Manzanar. Just <laughs> Just do the story straight. It's fucking good. It's already got a big bad guy in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's get into some contemporary reviews. There's not, I mean, there's not a ton. Our uh, old friends, Ebert and Rita Kempley of the Washington Post are back. Hello. Ebert gave the film three stars, which, okay, like it was released in January of 91, I think. And that January release valley might have had him grading on a curve but he does defend the great white savior decision for reasons that i don't think are clear here's a snippet come see the paradise has been criticized in a few places because it uses a technique that is common in movies about minority groups a convenient caucasian provides the point of view so that the audience will have someone to identify with I didn't appreciate that approach in glory. Why couldn't the story of these black Civil War soldiers be seen through their own eyes rather than through the eyes of their white commanding officer? But with Come See the Paradise, the introduction of the Quaid character seemed somewhat less contrived because the film's director, Alan Parker, is making a statement not limited to the story of his Japanese-American characters. By adding the Quaid character, he's able to show in one story how eager we sometimes are to deprive people of their rights for both racial and political reasons. End quote. What? I don't think Ebert is a stupid guy about this stuff. So this seems like this is a poorly explained rationalization, in my opinion. Yeah. And maybe just being generous in the way he expresses it, because he could have done that in one sentence of acknowledging that Parker may have been obliged to do this. And he found a nimble way of doing it because right. it didn't feel tacked on because you're you're still talking about a struggle within America for everybody to access their rights to express themselves and be themselves. So, I mean, it, it could be too, like, like we've talked about, you know, maybe Ebert is also just grading it on. Well, you know, that's the, by the contemporary standard of 1990, this is pretty fucking woke. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I think that we were just developing the, that language or these terms at that point in film and cultural criticisms like the great white savior like the magical black man etc and so on mm -hmm. so maybe in trying to articulate why this iteration of it wasn't as obnoxious as some he just didn't do a good job like even ebert was yeah. not a perfect yeah. reviewer sometimes they don't want to come out you got to drag out what can be dragged out and you're like sorry boss you yeah got to print something yeah i mean <laughs> paper's going out right but like the statement like why not limit 
the statement to the story of the Japanese American characters. That's your story. Anyway, yeah. Kempley, who I'm always hoping is going to file the contemporary review for Washington Post when we look these things up, because she's uh, pretty spicy, had this to yeah. say. The movie, both written and directed by Parker, is as melodramatic as Gone with the Wind, but not nearly as good at giving us perspective on relationships sundered and sometimes sealed by war. The British director, who is forever poking his nose into our affairs, is extremely respectful of the Japanese-American people. Perhaps he has responded all too well to the charges of racist revisionism leveled at his 1988 film Mississippi Burning, in which the FBI came to the rescue of the civil rights movement. The FBI comes off as the bad guys here, but it's still a fairly timid assessment of the events of the period. I mean, I agree, but again, this is perhaps because he's trying to tell the love story and tell the family story and tell the his story, and he's not going to do a super great job at any of those if he's trying to do them all. And it could have been a very forgetful production, too, because they leave doors open all the time. I don't know if you noticed that. This movie's rotten with people who just leave the dang door open. You know? Yeah. Just a, just a forgetful set. They got, they're too busy. <laughs> just, <laughs> this is what you end up paying attention to in a movie like this where you're like, oh, I, I see where, like, you pretty much see what you're in for, and then you're not surprised for two hours and seven minutes. I, I noticed unwittingly that because it has a romantic story structure that it, it started to, uh, shall we say, barge into my other gig uh, talking about Hallmark movies, because almost at the same runtime that there is frequently <laughs> the uh, the snowball fight or something, we have the, uh, you know, fall down and kiss in the mud flats. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and just like, you know, from here to mud turnity, I guess. I don't like it. But it's just it's just extremely Hallmark shit. And then like oh. five minutes later, he suddenly cares about labor organizing oh, in Seattle God. again. And she says, why does it have to be you? And it's that's very much at the like, why don't you just shut up and believe in Christmas kind of part? Mm -hmm. Like that's where the, the tension uh, usually comes in the plot. And in this case, it would be like, why don't you just shut up and be functionally Japanese? Right. And then, like, it kind of just follows it. Like, <laughs> I was enjoying going, like, well, now, where would I do the, you know, how would I rewrite this if I had to make it extremely gentle? <laughs> uh, I, I'm done. I'm sorry. I, I mean, it also felt like the movie kind of was like, can we not with this? It's like the movie realized its mistake in giving Dennis Quaid this big Norman Ray moment at the cannery. <laughs> That he's like almost blowing a blood vessel in his eye, screaming, you know, will yeah. none of you call an ambulance? Like, oh my God. Hey, Vanzetti, settle down. <laughs> he's, he's not good. You know, for all the times they make him from New Orleans, they could have made him from New Orleans in this one. He could have talked the way he normally talks. They, how did you not just rewrite that? Little, yeah, little also, bits like they that. had movies and projectionist unions in Texas. Just make him from yeah. fucking Texas. What the fuck? Anyway, let's get into our review, which we basically have already done. But I have a clip about um, their first contrived lunch together. I agree that they had chemistry, but the dialogue between them was really doing everything possible to pour icy water into the lap of this relationship. <laughs> Here's clip two. Shall we order? 
went to steam dumplings. <laughs> to eat? <laughs> to eat, to have lunch with, to play baseball with, to kiss. <laughs> Just started. <laughs> oh, I'm only serious. <laughs> Can I kiss you again? <laughs> It'll give you indigestion. <laughs> It sure fucking will, because I've got indigestion (laughs) and diabetes. There are so many new ways for you to treat your diabetes. There are people, more people qualified today to help you and give you accurate and valid information than there were 30 years ago. The comparison is unreal. (laughs) Like, I really want to eat some dumplings. (laughs) Like, that's, that's really kind of the profound visceral response i had to this movie is like fuck dumplings would be really yeah but then i i found myself nauseated not least by that brandon walsh baby voice he's trying to do (laughs) who who did they offer this part to before they settled on him because he looks good in the clothes but what the hell yeah that i mean it is it's some real like love via 12 year olds conception of of how it works there you know we were about a minute shy of like so do you like anybody (laughs) see japanese please check yes or no cootie catcher with kanji all over it (laughs) (laughs) i mean it might be too soon for that joke because they do end up living in a shack it's not okay all right before I play any more clips, which all has to have to do with uh, Quaid's performance specifically, I suppose we should rate this film. Do you want me to go first? She says. No, I, I can do it. It's fine. I, I feel like this is such a cop-out answer for me, but I really enjoyed the first half an hour until it kind of settled into what it was going to be. And then it kind of ground down and took my rave response, not rave, but like very positive response away. But the fact that the performances for almost the entire Kawamura family were so good and the parts where you don't have the kind of forced, how do we get him from, you know, the war to the camp again, that sort of stuff. Like it really did kind of even out like you can I, I, I feel like it's you know, throw it in the dead middle. It's trying to be the the sweeping kind of, you know, 90s epic. It mostly succeeded at doing that. And the parts of it that are great still are seem largely to be great in part in spite of how the, the, the movie works. Mm. But fine, five. I thank you. <laughs> I am not unhappy about watching it. I am not going to necessarily insist you do it. Yeah. If you have that's, not. That's about where I am. I don't know if you ever saw Birdie which this director also made. No. Uh, it stars Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine. It's a Vietnam post-trauma story. It's very uh, weird and very good, and Peter Gabriel did the whole soundtrack. I mean, this director also did Fame. He did Midnight Express, whoever... The Wall. Like, there's some weird synthesizer things happening on the soundtrack here that's like, why... Like, leave Giorgio Moroder out of this, please, I beg you. But this director, he actually died earlier this year. He's got, like, this rogue, he can have this rogue sensibility that I think he should have pushed harder to employ here. Mm -hmm. And in order to get this story made, which I suspect he felt quite deeply about, he had to make a number of compromises that didn't help. 
but there were some beautiful mm-hmm. performances. It's gorgeous to look at. The biggest problem in it is the whole reason that we watched it, and that's Dennis Quaid. Mm-hmm. So if you subtract the Quaid, yeah, it's like a six, but you can't subtract the Quaid. So I'm going to follow you and give it a five. All right. Compromise. Yes. That's why we listen to podcasts. <laughs> oh, is that why? I'm here to build consensus. <laughs> oh, is, is that what you're here to do? <laughs> okay. I've identified you as a local stakeholder. And uh, yeah, yeah. All right. So Quaid qua Quaid. This is a pretty interesting way of um, satisfying what must be the writer in every contract that Dennis Quaid must be allowed to sing. Clip three. Careful what you wish for there, buddy. <laughs> I'm sure he's like, wasn't isn't there a USO band scene? They're like, eh eh. I kind of thought the the bits where he's singing and dancing in the theater were pretty adorable. And uh, he he was like at his best and quaintiest, I think, in those scenes. It was just funny to me that like we're always looking for that. It's like the Hitchcock cameo is like, when's he going to sing? When's there going to be a guitar? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the part, the singing that got to me was the um, the hushed singing in Japanese um, after the war that you get in the the third act or whatever yeah. it is and uh where there's room noise and then it just completely drops away and i wanted them to join him but like putting the weight of that all on him and dropping out the rest of the noise really that was the that was a little too overdetermined kind of emotionally for me i wanted him to step back and trust his stuff a little more yeah there were a number of moments like that, that it was like, you, you know, you are, you've already done what you're trying to do in this scene. Like it, mm-hmm. the rest of the acting core already, already did this for you. Like we're, we're yeah. already invested in other people. Stop taking their emotional <laughs> accomplishments and giving them to Dennis Quaid, who then is trying very hard to poo and not succeeding. It is emotionally kind of like the, uh, Peter Jackson, no, you're only allowed six endings per purchase. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. Um, I regret to inform the assembled that the baby voice makes a number of return appearances, including in this scene, which uh, (laughs) this made me laugh, actually, because he's at his father-in-law's deathbed. And the minute he announces that he has to talk to his father-in-law, his father-in-law starts coughing and kind of writhing around on the bed and is making a number of faces that are probably just supposed to be him trying to cross over through the veil, but come off as being desperate to get away from Dennis Quaid by any means possible, including death. It's like the, uh, the, the, the camp mortality version of just like slapping at the, uh, the elevator door close button. He's just like, he's like peeking out into the hallway, like, come on, come on. No, please, before he dishonors me with this baby voice, here's a clip. You might want to turn the volume up because Dennis Quaid is acting very hard and very quietly. I need your help, sir. (laughs) You see, I'm not here on leave. I ran away from the army. 
God knows why, but I thought if I could be here with all of you, that maybe I could help. But then when I came in through those gates back there, I realized I can't help, not one little bit. And I just know that this whole terrible thing that's happened is my fault. The big part, or my little part. But I just wanted to say that even if you don't want to hear it, I love you all so much. That's really not good. It's not good. It's not entirely his fault that it's not good. I don't understand why all of this had to be committed to the page and then spoken out loud in words. We got it. Yeah, going like going AWOL is probably gesture enough in terms of the drama of it. We we can understand the risk that he's uh, he's putting himself in. Um, it, this this all could have been wordless, and and if anything, might have shown that he'd internalized some of uh, what his father in law thought was a more dignified form of of filial expression. Yeah, right? like instead, it's just sort of like, well, you've always been a distant man. Uh, you're clinging on, you're, you're clinging to life with your fingernails. Let me smother you, um, here for a little while. <laughs> Let me, um, reinforce your concept of me as a trifler who brings the Maloik. <laughs> yeah, just a, a serial barger to the end. <laughs> oh God. The bargement. It's a, it's a lot of barging. <laughs> Occasionally, there's also the foghorn leghorn walk from Great Balls of Fire that I'm like, I understand the pants are big, but we get it. You're walking. We can see you moving. Please stop. Yeah, that's 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 going to play havoc with your pelvic girdle of 20 years, buddy. You got to <laughs> dial that one back in, try to keep it more linear. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. So how are we going to rate this for quatervescence here i don't think his performance is as overall bad as the moments that are just like they're rough shoals for anybody but he's uh he's foundering on them Mm, pretty bad but outside of that he's he's all right the problem is the all right that he has to do is tonally more of a piece with those monologues Mm. so there's very little actual like there's good quaid in it but of the quaid that there is there's next to zilch on quaidosity yeah. Apart from the the early courtship and his kind of, you know, big pants, loose hipped grouchoing around the, the movie theater lobby, uh, everything else just becomes very kind of like breathy interp. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, it's like a two, a one. I'm, I'm, it's low. Yeah. Right. It's low. Um, before you commit to a number, I'm going to talk my own numerical process through here. He has a few moments where there definitely is that wolfish grin, but like toned down to be more romantical. But he describes himself as a dumb Mick from New York. And I'm like, well, you're one of those things, but I'm goddamned if I know. Oh, wait, I do know which one it is because I know which two it's not. He is put in a position by the character brief, by the dialogue that he can't be as quaidy as he could be or should be. And quaidiness is not necessarily called for here. I now am interested to see what this movie would have looked like if he had been full, like, Tuck Pendleton 
Quaid. Because it, I mean, it wouldn't have been dull. But this isn't very, this doesn't play to his strengths and it doesn't play well. And he looks good, but it's not his butt we see. Hers is nice, but... There are two butts in this movie I, I thought you should know. Neither of them are his. Yeah. That's not the butt ratio you want. No. It's almost as off as the uh, butt search results, honestly. <laughs> it's... All right. Have you committed to a number? Because I, I still am... I don't know. I feel like I, I feel like it's... Uh... Like the movie doesn't exist without him, and yet he shouldn't be in it. As we have defined quaity, right, it, it's virtually nil. Uh, so, like, I mean, I think it's, it's leaking out, but it's at, like, a one to a two level. And I'm not sure how low is unfair. Two, I guess, is... Yeah. I feel like two is, is low, but, I, I mean, it's our metric. We can do what we want. So I'm going to say a two. Fair enough. Well... <sighs> We came and saw the paradise and we weren't super impressed. So let's talk about what's happening next time on Quaid and Fall. Next time, it's Postcards from the Edge, which is where you'll probably find Mr. Jeb Lund during the editing process because we'll have two, two, two guests. Yowza! Returning Quaidologist John Ramos and my non-carnal life partner, Tari Ariano. In the meantime, throw on the third reel and check out the show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid and Full Pod and get even more content on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Quaid and Full. Quaid and Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet, but we love you all so much. So go sign up wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review Quaid and Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time. And movies. Don't forget the crummy movies. They're a dangerous weapon. They can bore you to death. <laughs>